Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Season 2, Episode 2, How Quoth Got His Groove Back where we will be looking at chapters 3 and 4 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of comfortable routines. If you're new here, a quick explanation of the pod. If you're not new here, still, a quick explanation of the pod. Each week we will be examining a section of The Wise Man's Fear through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. We will also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian phronemus of the week. After that, we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact, and then we will share a recommended thing of the week. Finally, we will wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. So before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, as always, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Second of all, our discussions naturally assume that either A, you've already read the main books, The Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear, as well as the other ancillary kingkiller novellas and short stories in the continuity. Or B, you're a weirdo and you don't mind being spoiled. It's okay. We're pro-weirdo in this house. We ourselves are weirdos. You're welcome here. But either way... Spoilers ahead. Finally, a word to the community. Be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds we love exploring. So with that, I believe it's your turn to do our 45-second recap. It is. Thank goodness it's a short section. You think you can do it? I don't like to boast. I mean, it could be raspberries for you. Ew. I think it would be hilarious if you earned raspberries on a short section. Just ten pages. Ew. All right, well, I got a timer ready. You ready? Yes. In three, two, one, go. Well, it's admissions time. Again. Fella joins Quoth in line preferring company over line placement, and we get hit with the foreshadowing bat for the next four pages. Later, Quoth does drudgery work in the fishery to earn more money because, of course, he's broke. Then... He sneaks food to Ari so that she will guide him through the underthing to his secret tunnel to the archives. 24.36 seconds. And I took it easy. Good job. Let's go ahead and dive in here. I know it's a short chapter, but I don't know that it will be a short review. So we chose for our theme comfortable routines. And this section of the book really does call to mind a lot of the normal routines that we see throughout the Kingkiller Chronicles. Quoth goes to admissions, Quoth goes to the fishery, Quoth hangs out with Ari, Quoth goes into the underthing. These are common events in the Kingkiller canon. Also, Quoth does things he ought not do. Sneak into the archives, which could get him expelled. And he knows it. But he thinks that somehow it is worth the risk because he needs to make sure that his tuition is set lower. And once again, we get this really stupidly convoluted... How does admissions work other than by, like, the whims of the teachers? It seems like it's just a demented quiz show. All we're admitting is just Billy Quizboy from Venture Brothers. You, sir, are a quiz boy. Oh, dear. One of the things that I did enjoy in this bit here is just the easy camaraderie that Fella and Quoth share. I note that Quoth is kind of still 
warring between the idea of girl and actual human being with complex needs, desires, interests, talents. But before we get there, we get another instance of Kvothe comparing himself to other people in a way that is unflattering to Kvothe if you're an outsider, if you're looking at him do this. I don't know why everyone else was worried, but I know why I was worried. Yeah, I think part of it is while there are definitely a great many people at the university who come from means, oftentimes significant means, even the people who do have more than Kvothe could still be easily priced out of the university. I think that that's one of those things, but also not understanding that it's not just about the money. It's about pride. It's about being placed in the correct classes. It's about being able to continue the path of study that they are invested in, not just monetarily invested in, but emotionally invested in. Also knowing that some of the professors seem to use this as an excuse to essentially prey upon students that they don't like. The version that we hear Kvothe talk about for Master Brander and Master Hem, they seem like they're more interested in mocking students who are there to learn. And yeah, if you know that all you're going to get off of these two is humiliation, you do everything you can to try and avoid that. That may also be the difference between deciding this is worth it or not. Because Hem and Brander, as presented by Kvothe, are abusive... Ashholes. That's something that I can see someone getting really anxious about, especially if they're professors in classes that you genuinely care about. Or that are required. To get to those classes that you care about. Yeah, I can totally see why people could have emotional reasons for feeling anxious about it, not just financial. But I mean, think about it. I know a lot of people that really, really wanted to be artists. Like, that was their whole goal in life. But the style of art that they do is not in line or in keeping with the style of art that their professors do or want out of them. Now, I understand the concept of push someone past their boundaries. But I think that if you're not finding value in what other people want to create and you discourage them from creating altogether, then you're the asshole. And it's one thing to say this class is specifically to learn about this particular type of art. We're not going to say that other types of art are not valuable, but we're just going to learn the techniques associated with this and you can then use them or not as you move forward in your career, but now you understand them. Right. So I understand the value in making people hand draw, even if they are ultimately going to be a digital artist. I get the value in that. But I do not see the value in saying this person likes to draw in this particular style, but I don't like that style. So I'm going to shirt on them. Like we say, Kvothe's version of the university faculty contains a number of people who would do just that kind of shirting. It's enough to cause some legit anxiety. I think also that in some ways, magic in Temerant is a form of art. I think that it's not all science and it's not all one right answer. 
I think everyone has to come at it from their own perspective and their own desires and their own experiences. That fits actually with Master Elodin's philosophy. Elodin is an extremely individualistic professor. He's all about trying to help his students figure out the right way for them. Because naming especially, I think, is the least exact of the sciences. <laughs> and it is deeply personal and so he's constantly looking to encourage his students to explore, to find how they view the world around them, how they make sense of the world. As we'll see later on, Quoth's experience with the wind is something that I think only Quoth could have. Only his particular set of experiences and values and aesthetics could produce that exact experience. Not to say that he's the only person who could learn the name of the wind in the group, but he could only learn it his way, and he's the only one who could. It's not something you could just replicate. Back to the beginning of the chapter, we have a brief explanation of how this tradition started of interviewing students to lead to what their tuition is, to lead to what their classes would be, to lead to everything that has been morphed into this untenable, awful process that is full of anxiety and angst and bartering time slots back and forth. It used to be a lovely chat with your professors, and now it's a stressful interview that determines your fate. Yeah, it's like they went from having an interview to determine how curious you were and what you were looking to do next and figure out what sort of classes you'd need to take to then some weird oral standard test. So it goes from almost having a nice conversation with your advisor, like a one-on-one -on -one intimate experience to being this thing that doesn't make any sense and is completely arbitrary. It kind of feels like they moved to a format where it's like the SATs were designed by a sadistic clown. <laughs> just kind of goes back and forth and all over the place just to try and trip you up, where the goal is to create trick questions as opposed to questions that actually test your knowledge. I've taken a few of both of those. Anyone who's had to go from ITIL V3 to ITIL V4 will understand the differences night and day. Okay, so explain what your, I don't know what jargon that was, a little bit because I don't understand. And if I don't understand it, I live with you. So in information technology, the IT infrastructure library, or ITIL, is a set of practices and standards that serve as a framework for how various technology departments and organizations work. So version 3 was famous for being all about the trick questions. Like, it was all about trying to make you think the question was asking about one thing when really it was asking about something different. Thus, all of the training classes were really about how to find the trick questions and how to pass it. That sounds like a headache. It is. In contrast, ITIL v4 is actually much more simplified in terms of the testing. It's actually giving you a scenario and then 
helping you figure out what the right answer is based on that scenario. It's more holistic, it's based more on finding something that's useful as opposed to your ability to pass a trick question. <laughs> it's night and day. The first one sounds exhausting. Yes. I remember in college, it wasn't necessarily about admissions and trying to pass tests after you got admitted the first time. Like, they figured that once you were there, as long as you were performing well in your classes, that you still should be there. But every time that choosing classes for the next semester came around, I had already had my plan figured out for, like, ever. And the one that really killed me was that because I test poorly, even though I understood the math, I couldn't get the math done in time for passing the admissions test. And I was at a level of pre-calculus when I was ending high school. I took a year off and then went to community college. And I swear I did not go from understanding right before pre-calculus to not understanding algebra. But I got placed into pre-algebra because I couldn't finish things in time. I read slowly, I process a little bit slowly, and I hadn't done math in a while. At least not that level of math. Arithmetic, yes, but algebra, no. And trying to explain this to my advisor, who was like, but you tested into this. And I'm like, but I know I can do better than that. And I do not want to have to take four different math classes to get to the one that's required for my degree, please. And you have to fill out your form with a pen. So I used an erasable pen. I got it signed off. I changed the class, got the admissions for the classes that I needed. And then it wound up that the class that I needed for that degree, I, I was woefully overqualified for because it wasn't anything like even algebra. It wasn't statistics. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was almost like analyzing math. I got a 4.0. I think part of it is that the university doesn't seem to have a grades system, so to speak, and this is the closest thing they get to it. Wait, so you're saying that you think that each teacher has to have an encyclopedic knowledge of each student's performance in each of their classes that they teach them? They don't. That's what I'm saying. They don't have any kind of grading or anything like that. I think what they do is they just say, okay, here's the lectures, here's the demonstrations, here's the assignments or whatever. We're not keeping records on any of this. And then we'll see how you do at admissions. I visibly shuddered at that. I'm not saying it's smart, but it seems to be what they've done. I mean, they can't even keep a library in working order much less student records. Their system isn't scalable, in other words. This is just the least bad option they've been able to come up with. Least bad does not mean good. It does not. Moving on, it's notable that Quoth feels like that this day that is full of anxious energy all throughout the student body has a festival air to it. Like people are celebrating. People are in reality, probably trying not to vomit. And then here are people with carts of food kind of barging in on the line 
for all thousand students that are trying to get these admissions tiles. And I'm betting that some of them actually just want to get it over with and are okay with the idea of going later in that day because they're actually prepared. But a lot of them are like, please don't be it today. Please don't be tomorrow. Please don't be until like eight days from now, please. Oh my God. If you ever needed an opportunity though to eat your feelings, those cards represent a way to do it. True. But I kind of feel like they're the equivalent of fish in a microwave at the office. Uh, I think it's actually closer to microwave popcorn because these are things that people actually would want to eat, but now they can't help but smell it. And the act of having the thing that you want just within olfactory range, but out of reach of actually eating, that's what's so tormenting about the microwave popcorn. That, and also burning it, which is the other no-no. That's how you get fire alarms. The worst smell I have ever actually had in an office building, though, was someone bringing raw broccoli. Like one of those trays of vegetables that's a little old and has been sealed up tight for a day or two and then they open it and it's just there was one time when I worked at a call center where everyone on the floor was like what is that smell where did it come from and it's clear on the other side of the damn building and it was so gross I don't think there are raw broccoli vendors here though <laughs> that's fair I mean all of this sounds like carnival food which is designed to be enticing it's basically like having a Cinnabon outside. Elephant ears. Deep fried food, all kinds of tasty drinks and snacks and popcorns and nuts. All that stuff sounds pretty tasty and it probably smells really good. And if you're just standing in line, you're nervous. Oh, okay, fine. I can probably part with a few pence here to get myself something tasty. So is everything on a stick? Pretty much. If it's not in a bag, it's on a stick. <laughs> And then there's Kvothe, who is bitterly aware that he cannot afford such things, which is so awful. Because it is. It's like having the bag of popcorn, somebody just sitting there eating the popcorn with everybody else going, But I want it. Please, sir, may I have some? Joke's on you. That guy just set off the fire alarm. <laughs> <laughs> well, now we get to Fella, who notices Kvothe, and decides that he's the person that she would like to give up her place in line for. Because she's further toward the front. And then she's very kind about telling everybody, Hey, I'm not really cutting in line. I was up there. And I'm sure you saw me because I stick out. What was it that Quoth said? Something about sticking out like a horse in a sheep pen? Yeah. Fella has some really humanizing moments here that I thought were really great. Like, she recognizes how she studies best. She knows herself, and she's not afraid to do what works for her, even if it bucks conventional wisdom. She doesn't seem to be falling into the problem of imposter syndrome. Like, she understands that different people learn different things in different ways. She is more math and science-oriented than Kvothe is. Kvothe can't wrap his head around numbers, which might be why the people who are all about logic and math and science and precision don't really like him. Heavens to Betsy. How could that be? I also recognize here she's 
not so caught up in having to be perfect and having to optimize everything that she's willing to sacrifice her experience. She could spend the entire day waiting in this line torturing herself, or she could move back a few spaces and hang out with a friend during this time. That seems like a more enjoyable use of her time, a better use of her time, than just standing by herself. We don't get the sense that she was ridiculously far ahead. Well, it's here that we find out that Elodin has a class this term. What's the name of his class? He said the name of the class was the name of the class, which confuses Fella, and she's not afraid to say that. It seems like it's a recipe for who's on first. All that being said, it seems that Kvothe did not have any clue that this was going to happen. And Fella is like, oh, I don't know if I was supposed to tell you that. I'm sure that Elodin's going to ask you. He's the one that sponsored you to Rular. Yeah, that's my out. He's totally going to ask you to his class. I didn't say anything. I mean, presumably there's a catalog. I don't know. I really don't know that anything's actually written down anywhere in the school. I don't know that there are legit class schedules anywhere that students can look at to verify that they aren't just signing up for three things that are at the exact same time. It doesn't seem like that information is very widely or readily available. Yeah, the bureaucracy of the university is looking rather slipshod at this point. <laughs> This is when we get to Fella and Quoth choosing their admissions tiles. Fella gets, I think, the last day of admissions for her date, and Quoth got a little bit beforehand. But there is a big deal made over the fact that Fella has the latest slot, which is a fair bit of foreshadowing you are supposed to remember this. Because otherwise, things that come up are not going to make as much sense. Also, if you're not supposed to remember this, Quoth is doing a piss-poor job as a storyteller by telling us about this. Right, because otherwise, why? This seems very detailed. Yeah, typically school class registration stories aren't gripping storytelling. Right, usually you don't put a neon sign right above the thing that says, Hey, wow! You got the latest slot. Look. I mean, I'm going to be real. If anyone were to ask me to tell the stories of my college days, the tales of class registration would not be it. Like I said, the only one I can really remember is the one where I cheated. <gasps> it was over 20 years. Oh, God. Before we get too far ahead, though, I do want to bring up some of their stories about Elodin here. The thing I really appreciate about Elodin is that more than anything else, he is a style guide geek. The fact that he would get into a bar fight over someone using the word utilize instead of use in a sentence? Oh, that is peak Microsoft standard for technical publications right there. <laughs> yeah, except I think, didn't Fella hear a different story? She heard a different story, which may also be true, just describing a separate incident. <laughs> Fella's version of the story is, I heard it was a baronet who wouldn't stop using the word moreover. Both of these stories represent people who are trying to use language to make themselves seem smarter than they actually are. 
Utilize is just a polysyllabic way to say use. It means the exact same thing. And so anyone who prefers to use utilize is really just trying to make themselves sound unnecessarily smart. And it's really dumb. So remember that, writers. If you want to create a character that sounds like they are trying to do something like this, that's completely different than if your prose is like this. Yeah, so if you're a technical writer or a speech writer or a comedian or someone trying to give a lecture, utilize is a great way to come off as an idiot. Or to come off as a know-it-all. Which is really just a really smart idiot. So judgmental. Like I say, I've been in my fair share of style guide fights. Well, let's move on. We have even more discussion about Fella's tile, her time slot, where she's like, hey, do you want this? And it's tempting to Kvothe because it could earn him a talent, which could get him ever so slightly closer to not being completely screwed when tuition is announced for him. And he says the sweetest, most chivalrous thing he could possibly say in that instance. I wouldn't want to take your luck. Aww. Foreshadowing. Anyway, we continue on with the foreshadowing bat. Fella asks if Kvothe would like to go to lunch, and he wants to, but then he lies and says, you know, I got other things I have to do, which is BS, because in reality, he is poor as fork. And I've been there. It never feels good to be invited out to lunch when you have no money and feel like you can't afford to pay your own way. Even if you ultimately would be okay with them offering, if you had the money and they had the money and they chose to just pay for you anyway, that feels more comfortable than if you don't have the money and they do have the money and you're just relying on them to be the one to pay things. And in this society, gender roles are a thing. And really, I can understand this. Quoth is nothing if not proud. He has a hard time accepting help in the best of times. And even just a, a friend saying, hey, let me take you to lunch, is more than he's able to bring himself to accept. Fella is clearly being nice, wants to thank him again for saving her life, which I get. Seems to like him as a person. There's a little bit of maybe she's flirting and maybe she's just nice. And I am inclined to believe that she is just nice and not necessarily that she wants to form a relationship like a capital R romantic relationship with him, but maybe would like to have some more friends in the university. You know, I have to imagine it would be a pretty lonely place for her. I have gone to a school that is around 20% women and around 80% dudes and you know, the non-binary of us kind of filter in there. If you are not making friends with guys as a woman or as a non-binary person, then you have a very small friend group available to you. And it's almost unfeasible that you wouldn't make friends with any of the guys. And not only that, knowing that there are some fairly entitled creeps at the school, someone who has demonstrated that they are non-creepy would be worth their weight in gold as a friend. Even as his internal dialogue is all like, uh, she's hot, he's mostly trying to not come off as all I'm doing in your presence is the tongue rolling out down the street and the heart eyes. 
know, he's a creature of hormones at this point because he's a 16-year-old boy. You know, at least that's how we're getting it portrayed because that's taking a stereotype and applying it to Kvothe. And he's trying very hard not to take a stereotype and apply it to Fella. Agreed. And I've been that teenage boy having an attractive female friend and thinking, ooh, I have a crush on them. At the same time, recognizing they are a person and I like being their friend. And that is plenty good on its own. Like you enjoy it. It's not a stepping stone. Right. Well, at that point, they part ways. There's no more excuse for them to be in the same space. And up comes Willem, who teases Quoth about flirting with Fella. And I think Quoth is still so, so, so intent on Denna that he can't even see how it would be interpreted as flirting to just be nice to a girl, which is the thing that's a shame. I think that we assume that the only reason you'd be nice to someone of a different gender is because you want to be in a romantic relationship with them, which is completely also ignoring the idea of homosexuality or homoromanticism. Yeah, it really does reduce gender relations to power dynamics, and it's really ooky. It's not just power dynamics. There is this misconception that you cannot be true friends with someone of a different gender, which is a sad existence, and especially when most of the people you're interacting with are a different gender than you. How are you supposed to form bonds with people if you're meant to fear that all they want from you is that romantic or sexual relationship like it's all predatory yeah it's the definition of a hostile work environment so i get why it's portrayed here but i also really don't like the idea that the only way that the female characters exist in this book are first and foremost who can we pair them off with? And secondly, they are a person. I find that in general, I am more interested in friendships than romances, just because I think friendships are underrepresented. And I think, especially in the King Killer Chronicle, I think friendships are underrepresented. I think that friendships amongst people of the same gender are represented, but also taken advantage of. And I think that this is an attempt to create a true friendship between people who are not of the same gender. I think that the awkwardness rings true with Quoth and Fella. And again, if you don't know the story and you don't want spoilers, go away for a second. When Sim and Fella are in a relationship and Quoth can kind of let go of the I'm being seen with a girl that must mean that people think that I am dating this girl. And he can kind of relax a little bit and not see her as an object to pursue or as what society thinks would be an object for him to pursue. I think that then their friendship gets a little bit less cringy. It also feels like he's having to do less work to try and just impress her. He's able to be himself. A little bit more. Because he still can't be himself in front of Willem and Sim, exactly. He is only ever really himself, I would say, in these books around Ari. We'll get to that, though. Well, 
Up comes Will, and there is even more talk about the time frames that each one of them is going to be going through admissions, because that's compelling storytelling. Quoth sells his tile to Will, thus changing what day he's going to be doing his admissions. Earlier by, I believe it's like a day. This seems like it would mean that he could rely on Will to trade him back the slots when what happens happens. But I think we'll get there and I don't remember precisely how that all went down, but I'm pretty sure there gets to be that little snafu of Will already traded that slot away and has already gone through admissions or something like that. We'll get into it in a future episode. Also, there is the neon sign of, and of course, since you can't go to the archives, why do you even want to have an admissions slot down the line and in the future? I mean, you can't study, which is weird, because why couldn't you study your notes? I, I don't get, but there has to be some other way to study than in the archives, because seriously... <laughs> At that point, if you're blocked off from the archives, then your future is all but doomed in the university. And that would be an unjust punishment. Well, Quoth did insist on antagonizing the Master Archivist. Right. I mean, you don't mess with Lauren. So we finally get our return trip to the fishery. And one of the things that we quickly find about Quoth is that his comfortable grooves oftentimes involve doing the thing that he thinks will be most profitable in the near term over doing something that will push his limits. So he has to make deck lamps, which are tedious and boring, but might earn him a couple of jots, maybe a talent or two. He's trying so very, very hard to scrape enough money together that he won't effectively be expelled. This is heartbreaking. He's already gotten the equivalent of financial aid when he first arrived here, and he cannot possibly get more. But on top of that, his pride won't let him borrow from people he knows. We know that Will and Sim would probably help him if he asked. I understand this very, very well, though. There was a point at which the car that I owned, I had less than six months to pay on it. It would have been done. It was less than $2,000 left to pay this whole thing off. But I didn't have a job and I couldn't get a loan to cover the last few thousand dollars of my car or an extension or any such thing. And so the solution that I was presented with by a friend was to trade my car that I loved for a car that I hated and they would pay off the loan for me. And then I could wash my hands of things and I wouldn't have to worry about extra costs and figuring out where I was going to come up with the money for this. And then somebody else just offered to pay off the loan for me and then let me pay them back. And at the time, the amount of $2,000 felt like this insurmountable amount that was going to take forever to pay back and I didn't feel right about owing a friend. And so I took the option that was less optimal, that made me kind of miserable. And in hindsight, I could have taken the other one, but my pride wouldn't let me. Quoth is nothing if not proud. I think, in fact, because of his reduced monetary circumstances, I think sometimes he feels like his pride is all he's got left. He's desperate. 
This is also another bit of foreshadowing because, as we'll see, Kilvin is not pleased by the idea that Kvothe is just doing things for profit and little bits of profit at that. That Kvothe is not using his full potential. And kind of a drain on the resources of the fishery at that point. First and foremost, it's still a school. Kilvin's goal is to turn out students who are producing excellent work and who are advancing the field of artificing. And if Quoth, who is one of the most brilliant people he knows, is not doing something to actually grow his skills, but only doing something to turn a profit, he's not doing Kilvin any favors, and ultimately, in the long run, he's not doing Quoth any favors. I think Kilvin was pretty wise on that part, but we haven't gotten to that just yet. <laughs> we'll cover that in a future episode. But he spends eight hours solid work doing a fair amount of menial, time-consuming, difficult labor. Instead of doing something that feeds his soul. Right. We know that Kvothe is someone who has deep passions and a deep love of learning and a love of music and stories. All of these things are core parts of who he is, and he's spending his time doing something just to make a meager profit. And that is one of those ways that we fall into a comfortable routine. I think that that happens with people with their jobs. They lose the passion for the thing that they used to love or that has become a drudgery of sort when they are no longer being fulfilled by the work that they are doing, but they keep doing it anyway. I think that there is something to be said for having the means to do this, but also realizing that even if you don't have the means to do it, sometimes it's still worth the risk to jump without a parachute. I've done it a few times. You've done it. You've called me and said, hey, guess what? I quit my job without us having a chance to discuss things. I would have still encouraged you to leave that particular job, but I'd have liked a heads up before you did it. But I think that we get so used to the idea of this safety net needing to be there that we don't recognize when there's a better opportunity and we don't take it because we're afraid of the risk. I'm not saying that up and quitting your job when you don't have a savings account and you have nowhere to land is the best option, but it's also not always going to be the worst option. And sometimes you discover that maybe you had more of a safety net than you thought you did. Calculated risk. I'm saying calculated risk. I'm not saying just go without any plan. But in this case, Kvothe has a massive safety net. He just won't use it. There are teachers that adore him that would probably let him sit in on classes, even if he hasn't strictly paid for the class. I had some teachers where I had to drop their class in the middle of the semester and they let me continue going to the lectures. They just didn't grade my stuff or force me to do any of the things to get a grade. But I still got to have the benefit of learning from them. And then when I was ready to take the class again, I had a lot of knowledge from what the holistic side of this was rather than being doled out bit by bit. Yeah, and like we said, it's not like the university has a robust bureaucracy at this point. Right. 
He also has the safety net of Will and Sim and some other friends and confidants that he doesn't realize would really be there for him. Heck, he could even probably get another loan from Davy, much as he's loath to do so. I mean, to a point, but maybe that's a risk that isn't worth it. Maybe, maybe not. Yeah, probably not. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. Here we get more of the story with Ari. When Kvothe gets back to Anchors, there's not a whole lot of food left. The patrons of the inn were rather hungry that night, and so all there's left are a few potatoes and a baked squash and a little bit of beer. So Kvothe takes the remnants of the food, pretends like he's going up to bed to nosh on his cold meal, and then leaves through the window, walks around the rooftops on the university side of the river, and finds Ari, who I have to point out also has some angel imagery around her. Yeah, her hair is described as floating like a halo. And in The Name of the Wind, there's the part where Kvothe is talking to Chronicler about all of these stories that he is known for, and something about having to fight an angel. Here it is. Chronicler found himself thinking of a story he had heard, one of many. The story told of how Quoth had gone looking for his heart's desire. He had to trick a demon to get it, but once it rested in his hand, he was forced to fight an angel to keep it. I believe it, Chronicler found himself thinking. Before it was just a story, but now I can believe it. This is the face of a man who has killed an angel. I really, really hope that that doesn't mean that he's going to kill Ori. So... As is usual for their little picnic dinners, both Kvothe and Ari make a contribution. Ari has brought an apple that thinks it's a pear, a bun that thinks it is a cat, a lettuce that thinks that it's a lettuce, which is probably the most tragic. <laughs> because who wants to think it's a lettuce? Kvothe, meanwhile, has brought sleeping cold potatoes, a squash that knows it's a squash but is pretending to be the setting sun, and a bottle of beer that thinks it's a loaf of bread. I mean, it's a Guinness. There is a part down below the exchange of food. She looked at me, her eyes gentle. Don't be afraid, she said, and reached out and rested her fingers on my cheek for the space of a heartbeat, her touch lighter than the stroke of a feather. I'm here. You're safe. Which is also another bit of foreshadowing, because there is a point at which Kvothe has a breakdown remembering all of the trauma from around, for us, episode seven and eight, the beginning of The Name of the Wind, when his parents are killed. And she just wraps herself around him and holds him. I think this is also another little bit of that angelic messaging, that don't be afraid. Like, that's a common angelic greeting in the Bible. Fear not, for I bring tidings, or something like that, usually. You would know that better than I would. So they also, of course, start to get into Ari's particular rules around eating. So there's no talking, no touching, no sudden movement, and no personal questions. If any of these rules are broken, she'll disappear for days on end. And we're not sure if this is because of a compulsion on her part or fear or something else. And then... Ari complains that Kvothe did not bring his loot. And Kvothe says, I have to go read tonight, but I'll bring it soon. 
there's conversation of how soon. So if you've ever interacted with a child, because she is portrayed as childlike. But soon means now. And Quoth is like, but soon can be in six days. And she's like, soon is not in six days. She's got immediate wants. It's okay for her to withhold herself from others, but not for others to withhold themselves from her. And then we find out one thing that Quoth is completely willing to waste money on. New clothes so that he can crawl through a terrifying vent hole to get from the under thing to the archives. Because apparently 15 minutes of feeling like you're being crushed by the weight of the earth above you is worth it. It actually makes sense though, because he can't have people knowing where he goes or suspecting that he's going somewhere underneath the archives. So he has to have something that can be clean that he can wear about above ground. Right, but he keeps ruining them. They're not clean. They're not in good repair. They're shredded after a half a dozen tries. That's true. This is not what you would call an easily repeatable journey. The end of the day, though, this is what he believes is the necessary price to continuing his stay at the university. He even says, there would be hell to pay if I were caught. I'd face expulsion at the very least. But if I performed poorly in my admissions exams and received tuition of 20 talents, I'd be just as good as expelled. So it's a horse apiece, really. Which is also a little bit of foreshadowing. Because I think he gets an exorbitant tuition because he has been promoted to Rilar. But the horse apiece, I think his tuition is the same price that he paid for Keth Salen. Oops. Which was like, what, 20 talents? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, he's still screwed no matter what. And then he feels like the risk isn't so great because... It's always dark in the archives, and it's easy to hide in the dark. I don't know that this is going to work out for him always, but I don't believe he's actually ever caught by people who would legitimately have a problem with him being there. Like, he's going to be found out by his friends, who are going to, like, essentially shirt themselves. But Elodin's gonna get him access to the archives again, so, eh. Well, I think we're at a good spot to stop and start moving into our next segment. This week, it's my turn to share the Aristotelian Phrenemos of the Week. So just as a reminder, the philosopher Aristotle believed that the way that we as humans could know what is good and wise is to find someone who is modeling this behavior. So, my model of practical wisdom this week is Fella. I was hoping that that's who you would choose. Yeah. For one thing, she understands that life is short, and it's too short to spend just waiting in line by yourself because you're told that's the optimal thing to do. She recognizes that as a human being, she exists in a community, and that that extra time with her friends is going to be time well spent. An extra hour or two just chatting with her friend Quoth is going to be a better use of her time than waiting in line, getting in and getting out. Yeah. Kind of stewing there. Right. There's nothing to be gained by that. She'll draw what she draws. That's the way the luck is. That's how she views it, at least. She thinks that whatever tiles she draws is lucky, regardless of when it is. 
And I think her view on luck is also one that she knows her own capabilities. She is confident in what she knows. She knows that she doesn't need to cram to make sure that she has everything memorized. The things that she needs to know, she'll recall them. If she's in a relaxed state, she's able to do what she needs to do. And she can take advantage of circumstances because she's able to just be in the moment. We don't see Fella here obsessing over making plans 30 moves out. In fact, I believe cramming is proven to have poorer results than just studying and doing the work and keeping relaxed before you take your exam. Yeah, I remember during my finals weeks, my best studying was just me hanging out with friends who were also in the class, going over our notes together, having a discussion, and not worrying about memorizing everything. Sometimes we'd go have a beer, sometimes we'd just hang out, have casual conversation about it. And then once we were both at the point where we didn't have any more energy left, call it a night. No sense trying to push yourself past that, know where your limits are. And then on the day of the exam, I always made a point to treat myself a little bit. Have something fun for breakfast. Have something that I liked. Make sure to do something that put me in a good mood. There's nothing to be gained by self-flagellation. You have to put yourself into a space where if you tell yourself you know this stuff, you've done the work, trust that. And just be open to whatever comes at you on the exam, you're going to do fine. Probably better than if you stay up too late trying to cram more in. Exactly. Yeah, it can be fun to say, yeah, I had six cans of Mountain Dew and everything just to stay up. No, that's not doing you any favors. Every hour you stay up past when you would normally go to sleep is going to be of reduced efficacy to the point where you'll actually undo a lot of hard work if you do it too much. One of the points of pride that I had at DigiPen is that I never pulled an all-nighter. The closest that I got was staying up till midnight if a project needed to be delivered by midnight and it was kicking my butt. And then sometimes because I was already at that like high level of just anxiety ridden, I had to stay up to like two playing Skyrim or something, but it wasn't trying to put more into my brain. It was trying to let my brain relax and get to a place where it could sleep. Really what you're doing in that case is you're letting your brain's write speed catch up with that buffer of information that you've built up trying to jam in there. And so you need to have that sort of abnegation activity, whether that is playing a game that's relaxing to you or reading a book or listening to music or watching a movie or TV show, just something that you can do to chill out a little bit. And I like Fella's attitude towards all of this. She is quietly confident about the fact that she's good at math. She's quietly confident about being sought after by certain teachers who want her to be in their classes. She doesn't take it as, hey, I'm special or I'm the smartest kid in the room. And it's refreshing. She's just confident in herself. And confidence is itself one of the major Aristotelian virtues. Confidence is not to be confused with arrogance, and it's also not to be confused with false humility. She doesn't go out of her way to tell everyone that she's a horrible person or that she's an idiot or what have you. 
nor does she go out of her way to say, I am the smartest person. Everyone should follow my example. Right. She just knows who she is, and she knows that that's enough. That level of self-knowledge is you know, really awesome, and especially in someone so young. A lot of kids at that age don't have it. And let's be real, she's maybe 18, 19 at this point. Maybe a little older, but probably not. It takes a lot of people many, many years to learn all of this. And to be that self-assured, I can see why she's able to learn the name of Stone. Because she is someone who knows exactly with rock bottom certainty who she is and what works for her. And she is not someone who gets swayed by other people trying to share what they believe is conventional wisdom. I really admire how Fella handles everything here. And I also have to say that I like the way she treats Quoth. She's gentle with him, she's friendly with him, and treats him like a human being. I think we should all treat people the way Fella does. That's my Phronemus of the Week. I like it. All right. I believe it is your turn here for the interesting fact of the week. So what do you have? Hopefully something that would make Elodin proud. Like very many of my other facts, this one comes from SciShow Psych, which is one of my favorite YouTube channels. It should come as no surprise that art, and more specifically paintings, can have various psychological effects on our brains, with art that we find enjoyable even reducing our stress levels. But it goes even further. Since art is such a personal thing that affects our emotions, it also impacts how we view the world around us and helps us see things from multiple and varied perspectives. Looking at art activates a part of our brains that plays a role in experiencing our active emotions, called the anterior insula. Research indicates that people will view the world differently while they are experiencing strong emotions. Happy moods tend to lead to a more open-minded worldview. Fearful moods, by contrast, make us see the world around us as a riskier place. And angry people see the world as more hostile. And the so-called negative emotions may even be more impactful as it comes to art. Art that encourages us to sit with discomfort or that challenge our pre-existing worldview can lead to a transformative experience wherein many find their views shift. Empathy and anger together play a role in this quite often. Kind of like that justified or righteous anger on behalf of something. But that's not the only way that art can change our perceptions. Interactive experiences, music, and written works are just a few of the types of art that can put people into a flow state, which is where we lose track of time and become less self-aware. Research suggests that becoming lost in a painting can also induce this flow state. You know, if you ever get so captivated by something that you're looking at, looking at all of the details, looking at all of the brush strokes, trying to figure out the meaning that the artist put into it and trying to figure out the meaning that you are taking from it. And when you take into account abstract art, which can force us to use a different processing style than representational art or things in our normal environment. Brain scans show that abstract art activates different patterns than we use to interpret most other things. This may even lead to a more abstract way of thinking about the world. Specifically, the more abstract our thought patterns become, the more likely we are to focus on the big picture or things as a whole rather than as a series of tiny details. 
Conversely, representational art can have the effect of grounding you and bringing you back to the present and shifting your focus to a more detailed view of the world while still playing with your emotions. Yeah, that reminds me of that one time during finals for you when I decided that you needed a break, so I suggested we go on a little art adventure. So we went to the local art museum near where we lived and just spent the afternoon walking through the galleries and just letting the art take us where we wanted to go. I remember how beneficial that was for you. I really needed that break. I was working myself into a tizzy and then being able to take myself out of that environment and put it into an environment of creative thoughts and works. Even though it's not really a painting gallery that we went to and is more of a thought-provoking displays of ingenuity, I guess, or cultural significance also, it gave me the opportunity to switch gears and see things from a completely different perspective I had gotten so myopic on this one piece of what I was working on that I couldn't see the big picture any longer. And by taking in these works of art that were created by other people and had an energy about them that was completely different than what I had been working on, it gave me a way to kind of memory dump and start all over have you tried turning it off and on again? It was a very good brain reboot, I'll say that. Yeah. All right. So that brings us to our new segment for The Wise Man's Fear, which is Thing of the Week. So a lot of you have enjoyed our recommendation segments in the Starless Interlude. So we decided we'd bring that over as a new ongoing segment. So this week it's my turn. And my recommendation is your friendly neighborhood music shop. Specifically, independently owned ones. In the before times, when it was safe to just go into a store and hang out, we used to go to our friendly neighborhood music shop and just play around with guitars and amps and pedals and whatever else floated our boat. You know, we'd chat with the staff, we'd share tips and tricks and listen to their stories and... You know, just kind of shoot the breeze, and then when the spirit moved us, we would buy something from them. Which is why I own my guitar. And why I own my amp. <laughs> and yeah, we have continued to be fans of theirs for quite some time. I'll go ahead and share their name. They are not a sponsor or anything like that, but it is Five Star Guitars in Beaverton, Oregon. We absolutely love the people there, and their online presence is wonderful. Now, in our current times, obviously just going to hang out in a guitar store is not an option. However, the good folks at Five Star have an excellent online presence where you can chat with people on their website and get recommendations and make purchases. And they also offer online lessons as well so that if you want to get good with the stuff that you've picked up, you can actually learn from them. And you're also helping support local musicians, which is even more important in this day and age when live shows are no longer an option. So look for ways to support the local music shop that you love. I think it's a good use of your time, your space, your money, and I think you'll ultimately make your, your life better. 
And I would say that even if you don't have the funding to be able to necessarily purchase a whole bunch of musical instruments or even the one that you have been drooling over, most of the people who work at these places understand that and really just care about you as a person and you with your interest in music because otherwise why in the heck are you there? And they're going to be great inspiration for wanting to learn even if you can't necessarily get the PRS that you are drooling over. I mean PRSs are notoriously dentist guitars. Oh god. They're fine instruments but the level of skill and craft involved in making them is something that drives the price to the point where really only upper echelon musicians who are making a good solid living or people who are otherwise gainfully employed as dentists can afford to buy them. Dentists, Microsoft employees that are like high up CEOs, people who are going to have something that looks pretty. A little of that, yeah. I mean, not going to lie, I kind of drool over them. I think this goes back to what you're saying about art, because when you look at a quality instrument, it is itself a work of art. I also really love watching luthiers make their guitars on YouTube and Instagram. It's always really cool to see what novel ideas people come up with. Whether that be making them an interesting shape or making them out of interesting materials. Or even just a conventional shape and material, but with a really unique finish. Just all of that stuff is really fascinating to me. And, you know, just watching these come to life, I absolutely love it. So, yeah, that's my recommendation. And now it is time for us to share seven words. You have the book? So, I have three. Our first, I wouldn't want to take your luck. I love that one. That's both being thoughtful and considerate, recognizing what Fella's luck means to her, and not trying to profit off of that. I think that's really respectful and good of him. Second one is, are you finished with your flirting then? <laughs> From Willem, who is, as ever, perceptive. And finally, I have, don't be afraid, I'm here, you're safe. Which is, I think, something that Quoth has needed to hear pretty much his entire life. Yeah. You know, from the time his parents were killed on, those words are things that he has needed to hear. He has spent his entire life being afraid, being alone, being in danger. And to have someone who says, don't be afraid, I'm here. You're safe. All of that is just, I think, really gentle and kind. And it reminds me of the kind of person I want to be for the people I care about. You are an excellent steadying presence. And I think that's not just for me. I see that in our friends who value you, value your presence and your friendship. One of our friends, thank the universe, just this week got his green card. And he and his wife spent a little bit of time with us because they had to come 
from their home, which is a couple hours away where we have recorded before. It's on the beach. It's wonderful. And they stayed with us for a day. And it was just such a boon to our souls to have them around. But I think your presence, your steadying influence definitely kept them calm in the face of something that is so nerve wracking. Because as it turns out, you have to prove to people who don't really care that you are in a legitimately loving and solid romantic relationship with your spouse. When it comes to these very short and stressful as hell interviews that determine whether or not you can stay with your partner. And uh, I can't imagine being in that position, but you, you have that quiet confidence. You have that, of course, everything is going to work out and I'm excited for you. That's your energy that you bring. And I think that that, don't be afraid, you're safe. I'm here. Yeah. I thought that was one that would resonate with you. It is. So you have the words from life. What did you pick? All right. So it's going to take a little explanation and like all inside jokes and all inside couples things. It may or may not resonate with our audience, but I don't care. <clears throat> Too bad. Good is not seven words. <laughs> Good. Good. All right, so this, like I said, takes a little explanation. Lately, within the last few weeks, every time Will or I say, I love you, or I adore you, or I think you're special, or any number of sweet, adorable things that make the audience want to vomit thing, the other one of us will just go, Good. <laughs> and this came to a head over the week because of our friends being around. And one of us just going, good. And then we have this whole thing just build into now it's all four of our thing. And I wanted a way to have that be part of our seven words. And so too bad. Good. It's not seven words. Good. It's just one of those things that's just making us laugh with one another and relieving stress and making everything just a little bit happier as we deal with things like our cat being sick or, you know, just waiting for things to happen that have been supposed to happen for six months or whatnot. Or even just the stress, the happy stress of wanting to save up money and wait until we get our vaccine before we start looking for houses. But we've been kind of on that bubble for about a year now. Also, just that everyone pointing out that it's been a year now. Everyone changing their entire lives for the last year. And I think we need to have those spaces where we can just be silly. And instead of the saccharine, oh, I love you too, sweetheart. You just go, good. <laughs> Essentially, what we're saying, dear listeners, is that when someone gives you a compliment, the appropriate response is, good. <laughs> <laughs> and it has to be in that tone of voice. 
In writing, it is all caps, period. <laughs> anyway, with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover Chapter 5 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of power dynamics. We would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend Shawnee Jank for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for the creation of this world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can find early access to the show, Patreon-exclusive bonus pods, and other exciting items. Also, feel free to share any additional recommendations for Thing of the Week with us. We would love that. You can find us on Twitter at WaystonePod. You can find us on Instagram at WaystonePod. Feel free to drop us a DM, and if we use your suggestion, we'll make sure it gets credited. And with that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. Good job. Great gerb. Great gerb out there, hamstree.